0: affiliate links and that's another great way to support the podcast thank you for your generous attention
1: so tonight I'd like to talk about the fruits of the retreat experiencing embodying carrying the fruits of the retreat and I think of an image Back in the 1970s, there was a revolution in Thailand, um, as happens in countries periodically. Um, Military dictatorship and the revolution was led by students who ended up with barricades on Rajadhamnon Avenue by the big Pramane ground in front of the palace and some quite pitched battles and other people joining the students. And finally, it got quite bloody and there was a real conflict um, and danger that it would spill further almost towards civil war. Um, Students were being shot, the military was on one side, and when it had reached almost its worst point at that time, an abbot of a forest monastery outside of Bangkok got all his monks and nuns up early, as you do anyway. They dressed in their robes as if to go out on alms round barefoot. And they walked for several hours into Bangkok and got there not that long after it got turned light and walked between the lines of the military with their guns and the students with their barricades and Molotov cocktails and just stood there for several hours meditating and there is and there was even more so a tremendous respect for the monastic order in Buddhist countries for monks and nuns and somehow their presence and their practice cooled the situation instead of it becoming more bloody The next day they began a dialogue and gradually it got disentangled and there was some accommodation as happens in politics and uh, greater bloodshed and more war, civil war was averted. You say, well, how is this possible? The greatest peace army the world has ever known or ever seen was in the 1930s. Guess where? Afghanistan, which was then the northwest frontier province. It was organized by Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan, who was this great elder there, and a very close friend of Mahatma Gandhi. And he had 100,000 men, all devout Muslims, who vowed to resist British rule without weapons in their hands or violence in their hearts and kept their vow despite many being killed in great provocation. So there's something in the nobility of humans. You think about the Afghanis and all the different occupying armies that they have um, defeated in their own way with a kind of courage. But the courage is not just the courage of violence it's really the courage of heart so if it's possible in those circumstances perhaps you too could carry this and I actually think you do when I see you as I spoke this morning at the end of retreat when we see you coming to uh, Our meetings together or sitting in the hall. We get to kind of look out from this little perch up here. And you look better and better. Shining, steadier, more at ease in yourself. Doesn't mean it's all easy, you're human beings, you know. But there is some palpable sense that if we really needed to, we could all get up and go out and stand between the two sides in San Francisco or Berkeley or somewhere like that and, and carry our practice and make a difference. By dedicating yourself to the practices of mindful awareness, loving kindness, compassion, you start to trust in the waves, yes, sometimes you're open, sometimes you're closed. The idea that your heart's going to open and you'll just be loving all the time, oh, I just love everyone, is folly. Because you've got to breathe, you know, and even the heart opens and closes. Sometimes it's open, sometimes it closes. But there's a deeper opening that you come to trust, like the flower that blossoms The psyche, the heart, the body, it knows how to open if you tend to it. It's not like you can force it open. You don't want to pull the petals of the flower open. But as you tend and come back, watering the the seeds with uh, your loving kindness, with mindfulness, there grows a trust that you can be present, and this opening happens. In the Jewish mystical tradition, one of the great rabbis taught his disciples to memorize, reflect, contemplate, and place the teachings of the holy words on their heart. One day a student asked the rabbi why he always used the phrase, on your heart. The master replied, only the holy one can put the teachings in your heart. Here we recite and repeat and learn them and put them on the heart, hoping that someday when your heart breaks, they will fall in. So you practice and you prepare yourself to open. And you start to trust. So we've gotten a number of notes from you. Um, Some of you are serial note writers. Serious, (laughs) serious serial note writers. This is kind of not exactly a note and journal that someone brought to one of our meetings and um, she said it would be fine to read a portion of it to you. Pulling and tugging at my collar, the mind rings me out. Head in hands, I beg for it to stop, but its vengeance is relentless. A way to punish me for the times I've ignored, checked out, abandoned, misused, pushed it away. It now gnaws at my neck, head, shoulders like a bull jaw clenched, foaming at the mouth, there is no escape from the mind. (laughs) Planning, plotting, its sidekicks have blocked all Eckhart's doors, locked the windows, turned off all the lights. (laughs) Remember those sittings? (laughs) Through a crack in the window, I see presence, peaceful, steady presence. With hands cupped around its eyes, it peers in from outside the window, searching for me too, but it cannot see me. Thinking is like this. Obsession is like this. Confusion is like this. I say it faster and faster. But it's too dark, too late. The mind has taken over. It's released doubt, discouragement, anger, clinging, aversion. The whole posse is there. Self-hatred ties my hands and with his arms crossed stands like a bouncer guarding the door. I cry and sink thinking of Ananda on the day the Buddha died weeping and I surrender give up sorrow is here I say quietly sorrow is here I could never attain you anyway presence I think this is a lie wait a minute awareness whispers like a ghost this is a lie and just then loving kindness Directed by Presence, who has now drilled a hole through the roof, descends a rope from the ceiling as it drops at my feet. Wait, you are not your mind, he yells, repelling down. Remember who you really are. (laughs) Ah, escaping, out, swaying in the wind among the trees. Finally, pray with me, they invite. I'm not accustomed to such invitations I bow my head humbled stay with the trees something tells me just breathe with them and be still be still and do not wait no more questions just silence and the wind and the rustling and bending and the air against my cheek freezing my tears just this just now and the going with, not against. This is how to remain unbroken. So you learn, and you have learned. You've sat through pleasant and unpleasant, joy and sorrow, difficulty and ease, inspiration and doubt. Ah, this is the doubting mind. Thank you for your opinion, the judging mind. And when you begin meditation, the tendency, quite understandably, is to focus on objects, the experience of the breath, sensations in the body, tensions, light, heavy, hot, cold, sounds, feelings. And to notice, if you become a little bit more attentive, the characteristics that were talked about. Every sense experience, every breath is impermanent. It's dukkha, it's unreliable, anicca, dukkha, anatta, it's selfless, it comes, thoughts, feelings, sounds, sensations come unbidden. And as you practice, there is an invitation to shift from focus on the experiences that are happening to the knowing, to the one who knows. Ajahn Chah's phrase, to the spacious open heart of wisdom and ease and graciousness. As the poet Rumi says, when you go into a garden, do you look at roses or thorns? Spend more time with jasmine. So over the days and hours of your practice, as you sit and walk and help cook in the kitchen and help clean and so forth, there is a ripening of mindfulness and loving kindness. And as this presence grows, drills the hole in, repels down, takes you out from your mind for a moment, back to the trees, what you'll notice, what you can sense in yourself and have seen, is that in certain moments or times or periods, the factors of enlightenment and the jhana factors these beautiful qualities start to make their way into your experience. Mindfulness, interest, joy, calm, clarity, steadiness, equanimity, concentration. And as you start to feel them, you can actually enjoy them, please. Dwell in them, marinate in them, inhabit them, expand them. So yes, there's the struggles and the breath and the objects and so forth. And then there comes a little bit of calm, some sweet sense of presence, some sense of compassion or love comes in. Don't go back to your problems. Stay with the love, the compassion, the sense of calm. Invite it to open, inhabit it. It is the awakened mind, the awakened heart. And it's waiting for you, because it is who you are. Now, the awakening of these factors of enlightenment, which happens to everyone, you all have your moments, they start to come in, also is described in another list, since the Buddha was a list maker, liked to make lists, the seven factors of enlightenment, the five jhana factors, the... Eightfold Noble Path, the Twelve Links of Dependent Origination, the Four Noble Truths, and so forth. The Three Characteristics, the Five Skandhas, etc., etc., the 52 Mental Factors. Um, (laughs) He also enumerated my favorite list, which happens to be where you dwell. This is a double entendre, so you catch it. That is um, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upeka the four dimensions of the awakened heart, of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, the name of your residence halls. And what happens as we release the identification with the small sense of self, identification with our thoughts and fears and judgments, the natural openness, and radiance of consciousness begins to show itself. Sometimes in glorious ways, using radiance of consciousness, some people are sitting there saying, what's he talking about? But sometimes in much more um, immediate and simple ways. Calm instead of chaos. Um, Joy instead of depression. Some sense of ease instead of struggle. And as the practice deepens further, you discover that enlightenment and awakened consciousness, because strictly speaking, as to use Suzuki Roshi's phrase, strictly speaking, there are no enlightened beings. There are only enlightened moments. If you say, I'm enlightened, you've already kind of missed something there in that sentence, right? (laughs) Me, I'm enlightened. Okay. Good luck to you. But enlightened consciousness, awakened consciousness, is like a jewel. And if you hold a jewel or a crystal up to the light, you get the refraction of the different colors like a rainbow. And similarly, in one dimension of awakened consciousness is stillness, vast silence, get truly peaceful. And you turn it a little bit and another dimension of it is love. It's filled with a radiance of love. And you turn it a little bit further and there is in this openness of consciousness a sense of perfection. Even with the joys and sorrows of the world and life there's a sense of perfection of it all. You turn it a little further and it's the void, it's emptiness, nothing is solid, it all appears and disappears. Turn it a little further and it's fullness. Yes, it's empty, but also when you say to the Zen master, it's so empty, and that's when she takes the stick and whacks you over the head and said, how empty is that, huh? How's that feel? Turn it a little further again, there's the sense of luminosity And people who have experiences, especially really deep ones, and become um, teachers. Thinking of my employment, my industry, right? One of the things that happens is that they tend to express their enlightenment in the way that it came to them. So some say, oh, it's all love. That's what it is. And somebody says, no, it's all emptiness. No, no, it's perfection. No no it's actually bliss or whatever. And, and, and they think that they actually have it. Um, in one way, they do, but in another way, as you deepen further, you recognize that, like the factors of enlightenment themselves and the Brahma these are dimensions of innate consciousness when it's not bound by or caught by the body of fear, the small sense of self. And they start to open. It doesn't take that long, 10 days. You all have tasted them in different ways. You have. Because it's a really returning to the natural state, the innocence that's born in you as a child, and purity. So here you sit, and Will talked about a Nietzsche, right? First of the characteristics the eight winds, praise and blame. Gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. Anybody not have? Joy and sorrow. Or the rivers, the five rivers that are changing. The river of thought, you noticed that one, didn't you? The river of perceptions, how you see it, your opinions and views. The river of feelings, the river of sensations and sense experience. The river of knowing. It's all impermanent and you quiet yourself, and you discover that what you are is a river. So then what to do? Relax. You're floating down the river, you are the river. What to do? There are three rules for writing the great English novel, said Somerset Maugham. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. (laughs) So you think somehow that when you get it together, you will understand how to operate and have it all together. But Ajahn Chah said those who are wise are more and more comfortable with uncertainty. They relax and trust the un- endless, boundless, creative unfolding of life. And so with this Anicca, there comes a kind of an equanimity. Oh, how to. A- sitting that was pleasant, a sitting that was painful, the mind that was stirred up, then the mind got quiet, the heart opened, the heart closed. And the equanimity is not an indifference or a removal from life. It's a discovering that you can relax in the midst of change, be spacious with it. Like the line from Swami Satchitananda that I saw on the poster in a health food store in Santa Cruz in the 1970s where he was balanced in the tree pose on one leg, little orange loincloth, surfing on a big wave. It was before Photoshop, so it was quite impressive, actually. (laughs) It said underneath, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. Meditate with Swami Satchitananda. And that's kind of what you've been surfing, basically. All the waves come. And there comes a graciousness and equanimity and ease that doesn't get caught by the individual waves, but recognizes that change is what we are. For years and years, writes Mary Oliver, I struggled just to love my life. Such a good line. For years and years, I struggled just to love my life. That's about half of spiritual practice. And then the butterfly rose, weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, she said, and vanished into the world. And the image of the butterfly is so beautiful because it's fragile and its life is, to our time frame, short, although for it, it might feel like it's quite long and eternal. But I struggle just to love my life. Don't love your life too much. And you feel then this paradox, the... Graciousness of equanimity. That you can become the space of awareness that allows your mysterious human incarnation to unfold without fear and clinging with a graciousness. And just as you find peace in anicca you also discover that Nikki talked about it. She talked about dukkha. Matthew talked about clinging the cause of dukkha. Unstable, unreliable, the inevitability of loss. Bummer, as she said, right? (laughs) And out of your dukkha grows compassion. Overcome any bitterness, say the Sufis, Spirvalayat Khan, overcome any bitterness because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the world in her heart, each of you is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are called upon to meet it in compassion instead of self-pity. And so when you sit and walk and practice, everything changes, you relax. You also discover dukkha. Anybody not seen it? You can have your money back. <laughs> and it won't help, I promise you. And then from it, as Nikki talked about, there grows this compassion. And it's innate, it's the quivering of the heart as soon as the heart is touched by life. It's the little kids in Peggy's kindergarten who saw the warplanes headed out for Iraq. And running, running, really frightened. What's in those planes? Guns, bombs? Yes, she said. Are there children there like us? Asked one of the kids. Yes, said Peggy. Oh, they must not know that. They wouldn't send bombs there if they knew that. We have to tell them. Kids ran out and made a huge picture of a child on the playground out of butcher paper and spelled at Iraq, so it could be seen from the air. It's innate in us. And you feel it in the meditation. As you open, first there's struggle and suffering, and then maybe somebody near you starts to weep. Oh, is it all right if I weep in the hall, they'll ask. Please. Helps everybody. Poem. Meditation hall at night. I'm serenaded by a chorus of creek frogs and my neighbors weeping. Her tears mysteriously stream down my face. That's how it is. It's so natural. Now don't think that because compassion comes in you that you're that cool. (laughs) Um... Inbal Bartal and Gene Desity at the University of Chicago did a study about rats, and they put a rat in a pretty big cage with some nice digs and some good food, and then they put a little, tiny, squeezed, painful cage and put another rat in it that could get released when the bigger, free rat pressed a lever, and it learned to do that, and... The rat in the little cage in pain would squeak, squeak. And then they would put chocolate chips, five chocolate chips in for the rat in the big cage. And once the rat learned, squeak, squeak, how to let uh, a crying rat out by pushing the lever, not only would it let the rat out, but it would save a chocolate chip for it. It wouldn't eat all the chocolate chips. How's that? So, yes, you're cool, but, you know. (laughs) And when you leave here, then what's asked of you with a Nietzsche is to accept change and to relax. I mean, you could get uptight. That's okay, too, if you really want to. But um, it's going to change anyway. How do you want to live, you know? And with dukkha, the heart just gets tender, you know. I read this story from Uriah Mountain Dreamer, poet, acquaintance. At the end of a very long day, a meditation seminar that I was teaching, a small, thin woman in an oversized parka introduced herself as Isabel. Can I do this meditation on my own? she asked. Yes, I said, I'm sure you can, though people find it helpful to practice with others. It's hard to keep it up on your own. Remember this, my friends. But what will it give me? What will I get if I do this every day? Her tone took on a whining quality, and I felt my irritation rise, and she continued, I mean, how fast is it going to work? Will I feel a difference after a week? How will I know it's working? This was exactly the kind of thing I detested the quest for the quick fix the desire for guaranteed outcome the simple answer do this and you get that my children were waiting for me and I wanted to go home it was a long day so I took a deep breath looked directly at Isabel, and set my knapsack down on the floor I tried to slow down my words thinking that maybe if I spoke slower I would feel more patient <laughs> well I said meditation is more a process than a goal-oriented activity. It can help you become more aware of what's going on within and around you. My best advice is just to be patient with yourself. I picked up my bag and started to button my coat. I really did have to get out of there, and I wanted to leave while I was feeling virtuous for not snapping her head off. (laughs) (laughs) But as I started to move away, Isabel suddenly reached out and grabbed my arm with surprising strength. But, but... But what I want to know, she said, her voice rising in a crescendo that bordered on real panic is, will it help me find God? I mean, if I meditate, will I have an experience of something or somebody out there listening, someone really with me? And a wave of desperation swept out from her through me, and I was surprised to find my eyes filled with tears. This woman wasn't looking for an easy answer or guaranteed formula because she was lazy, she didn't want a simple plan because she was unable to think critically about what would work. She wanted something she knew would work and work quickly because she was hanging on by her fingernails. She wanted something that would work in a week because she was afraid that she simply wasn't going to make it through months or years. I put my hand gently over Isabel's where it gripped my arm. It's okay, Isabel. We all feel desperate at times, I said. Nobody does it by themselves. We all need help. Her hand relaxed a little beneath mine. She started to cry. We talked for a while longer. There's no them. There's only us. And when I left, I didn't leave one of them. I said goodbye to one of us, a human being doing the best she can, searching for the home for which all our hearts long. And so what happens as you leave is that your hearts are more tender. And it's not just self-pity, oh, I've suffered a lot. You have. I know you have. (laughs) But it's something bigger than that. They're called the tears of the way. They're tender because you see the preciousness of life. You let yourself be touched by the beauty and the magnificence and the struggles and the fears and the pain and all of that. And if you want a beautiful practice as you leave, work with compassion. And then there's anatta, right? As Wes says, anatta me, anatta you. That's his (laughs) explanation for it. The Italian Dharma. (laughs) Selflessness. Really, the shift of identity. We take this small sense of self, which you need to honor, and respect, and care for, um, but it's a kind of an illusion or a prison if you take it too seriously. And his talk on awe and form and emptiness. He could have been reading the Heart Sutra, but he was reading the Cosmos. Form is not different than emptiness. Emptiness not different from form. That was his sutra last night. So, Ramdas was asked at one point <clears throat> years ago when he was still wearing beads and white and a beard, Baba Ramdas for that decade, be here now decade, um, one point. Here you are teaching as a Hindu guru and speaking of Ram and Krishna and so forth, but weren't you born Jewish? <clears throat> you know, what happened to your Jewish heritage? Do you value it? And I said, of course I was born Jewish. I was bar mitzvahed, grew up you know, with Jewish education, as I was. He said, and, and I, of course I respect it too. There's especially the Jewish mystical tradition, the Kabbalah and the Hasidic tradition and so forth. He sat quietly for a bit. And he said, but remember, I'm only Jewish on my parents' side. <laughs> and he was very witty... But also there was something um, enormously profound about it. You're only partially your parents' kid. You know, thank God. I mean, they did the best they could, right? But that doesn't define you. Who you are is so much more than you or some being that came in entrusted to them and they did what they did. But that, your history, doesn't define you. And so as... You feel, Anatta, the sense of no self. Well, one of my teachers said, no self, no problem, basically. The more self, and the more separateness, the small sense of self, taking things personally, the more problem. Kalu Rinpoche, the great Tibetan Lama, said you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Kind of an amazing statement. There's a reality, but you don't, you're not in touch with it. And when you do understand, you'll see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. When self disappears, then self becomes everything. But it's not me or mine. It's just what is that we participate in. Tutu, Grandfather Tutu, Archbishop. He says, in Africa, when you ask someone, how are you? The reply you get is always in the plural, even when you're speaking to one person. A man would say, we are well, we are not well. He himself might be quite well, but his grandmother is not well, so he is not well either. The solitary, isolated human being is a contradiction in terms of folly. It doesn't exist. And so you start to sense with Anatta that there's less of you and more of you. In this beautiful way, Alice Walker says One day I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was. And it came to me, that feeling of being a part of everything, and I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and cried and run all around the house. When it happens, you just can't miss it. And you know it, walking in the mountains and making love and special day swimming in the ocean, listening to extraordinary music, being at birth or death. I've talked about this. Something in you knows that your home is so much bigger than the small sense of self. And so, out of anatta and the sense that you're not this small sense of self, that you're nothing and you're everything, there also comes, out of all these, grow these different qualities, there also grows a kind of meta. Because it's not me here, but it's us connected together. Being nothing, you are everything. So, in the mountains of northern Iran, where the Lori people live, in Loristan, they bring their herds up in the summer and then move them back down in the winter. They give the young children of the village to a medium-aged child, 10, 11, 12-year-old, to watch the little ones, as they do in village cultures. And so they were up in the mountains, and this girl was given a group of young children, and she started to run back one day, shouting, He's disappeared, he's disappeared. Little boy, 16 months, couldn't walk very well. Son of a neighbor, and everybody got alarmed. They came back and they looked all over, couldn't find him. And they thought, well, maybe he toddled back to the village and to the yurts or whatever they had been staying in. And they looked under the pillows and all the hiding places and everywhere, and they couldn't find him. And everyone got more concerned, and it got darker. And they started looking and shouting kind of panic. And they looked as best they could at night and couldn't find him and thought he'll be so cold. The next day they looked all over and they couldn't find him, and someone said they had smelled or seen or scented a bear. No, somebody else said, not possible. Don't say this, please. And they looked further and further for the child, couldn't find. They said, well, we have to go to the caves then. They knew where the bears lived. And they walked up the next morning, A group of six or eight men through the trees through the forest up to where the rocks of the mountain started and there were caves how could this little boy walk that far but they couldn't find him anywhere live oaks turning of the seasons the smells of the forest one cave after another And then on the fourth cave, or the tenth, they hear a voice, a cry like a child. Cautiously they look in, and ominously they smell bear. But the boy is there, crying, alive. They let their eyes adjust and go close, and in the half-light they see the animal, a round, thick-furred, quiescent she-bear lying against the wall. And then they see the child, the bear, is curled up around him. I don't know what happened next, but with wild sounds, gestures, fiery torches, they scared the bear out of the cave, rushed in and grabbed the child. Praise Allah. This is not a mistake or a hoax. This actually happened. I've searched for all parts of the story this is from Barbara Kingsolver I read it in the news I followed it until I found the sources in Arabic and Farsi and had people translate the baby was found with the bear in her den alive unscarred perfectly well after three days well fed and smelling of milk the bear was nursing the child what does this mean how is it possible that a huge hungry bear would take a pitifully small, delicate human child to her breast rather than rip him into food? But she was a mammal, a mother. She was lactating, so she must have had young, perhaps lost her own young. And so she was driven by the pure quality of maternity to take this small, warm neonate to her belly and hold him there gently. Now you could read this story and declare impossible, even though many witnesses have sworn it's true. Or you could read this story and think of how warm lives are drawn to one another in cold places. And think of the unconquerable force of a mother's love, the fact that the DNA code that we share in its great majority with all mammals, you could think of that and say, of course the bear nursed the baby he was crying from hunger she had milk small wonder so you enter into a communion with life a love affair with life really with your own loving awareness because it's what you are and who you are it's your people it's your earth Wes went to interview Gary Snyder, the great environmentalist. Uh, this some months ago. Gary is now 84, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, but also author of Earth Household, and all of these great environmental, educational tracks and ways of seeing Bioregionalism, things that came out of Gary's vision. And he said, What do you think, Gary, at 84? Do you have any message for us? Climate disruption, loss of species, global warming? What do you have to say to us? He replied, Don't feel guilty. If you're going to serve it or save it, this earth, don't do it out of guilt or anger If you're gonna serve it or save it do it because you love it it's the only force that really can change anything so you see impermanence and you relax because you can't hold on you learn to let go you see dukkha and your compassion grows the heart becomes tender You see that you're nothing and everything. You fall in love. And as you get more empty, paradoxically, you get happier. It's a kind of wonderful thing. Joy is a factor of enlightenment. The Buddha said, enlightenment doesn't happen without joy. How's that? Isn't that fantastic? And the Buddha was called the happy one. And I think of my teacher, Mahagosananda, who came here and we brought to America was the Gandhi of Cambodia, this amazing being and friend of the Dalai Lama who led peace walks through the war zones of Cambodia for 15 years, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize many times. But basically, my daughter called him Butterball. He had this bright orange robe, and he just smiled, and he was joyful. Nineteen of the twenty members of his family were killed by the Khmer Rouge. His temples were burned. It's like the Dalai Lama. Um, Somebody said, you know, how can you talk about happiness when the Tibetan people have lost sovereignty over their land, the temples, and all the destruction that have happened. You hear these stories of torture. And he looked back, he said, they've taken our sacred texts, they've burned our temples, they've taken our land, you know, they've taken so much. Why should I let them take my happiness? A poem that I read often when I speak of this, that I think is one of the great poems of the last number of decades by Jack Gilbert, one of our really treasured poets, called A Brief for the Defense... Or the lawyers among you. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. This is a tough poem, by the way. If babies are not starving someplace, they're starving somewhere else, with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what the gods want, too. Otherwise, the mornings before lavender summer dawn would not be made so fine and the Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously orange and black. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they've known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight not pleasure-seeking but we must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world to make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil if the locomotive of the Lord runs us down we should give thanks that the end had magnitude we must admit that there will be music despite everything. To make injustice, the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. We must risk delight. How is that? Because it doesn't serve someone who's suffering for you to pout about it and for you to dwell in the depression and How do you serve this world? You serve this world with an open heart. You serve it out of your love. And the world's always trying to love you back. We must admit there will be music despite everything. Sun drapes a buttered scarf across your face. Rose opens herself to your glance. Rain shares its divine melancholy. The whole world keeps whispering or shouting to you, nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. And one of the things we did in creating this place, that's Alison Luderman's poem. When we first were looking at how to build spirit rock, we looked at different architectural forms and thought about, one thought was to do Spanish mission style. And there's a place that we, monastery that we rent called Santa Sabina, that has this flower filled courtyard and these beautiful arcades of stucco. And it's just this wonderful kind of walled garden. But then we realized that on retreat, if we made this more like a forest monastery, even in the rainy season when it's cold as it got yesterday and the wind blows and the fog comes in. You go out into the forest and into the night under the stars and between the buildings and somehow your practice opens you up to the swaying of the trees and the deer on the hillside and the croaking of the frogs when the rains come. They get very loud in here. Frogs are about that big and they are, you know, opera singers. Enormous voice from that little tiny frog. And that somehow that this is our practice. So you're asked to celebrate life, like Gosananda who lost everything, or the Dalai Lama, why should I let them also take my happiness? To embody what you've understood, the last piece, requires the understanding of intention. And that's the way karma works. Karma vipaka, the language in Pali, Sanskrit, cause and effect, if you will. Karma also means action. But most importantly, the root of karma is intention. So that if you drive your car and you get into a crash, let's say you're in your neighborhood and you crash your car, through the fence of your neighbor next door and smash into the living room Window, if you do that behind the wheel of your car, smash through, because you are furious at your damn neighbor for all that they've done, and now they're building this big thing and they cut down the tree, and you're just raging, and you do that, they will call the police, the little blue bubbles and lights will come, and they will lock you up, right? Same action, you're in your car. The gas pedal sticks, you crash through the fence into the living room. Your neighbor, there you are, car, crash, same result. Accident. The gas pedal stuck. Your intention wasn't to harm your neighbor. Completely different result. The source of karma is the intention that precedes your words and your deeds. Does that make sense to you? So, to embody what you've learned here, now that you've gotten still, you can do this little sacred pause thing in a conversation where it gets heated and difficult, or there's the email you're about to send. Before you push the send button, take a couple of breaths, or you're there in conflict with someone, should it happen. Not me, of course, never happens, but should it happen to you? I remember, yes. Pause for a moment before you press the send button before you blurt the next thing out. And instead of being defensive or angry or trying to prove you're right or all those things, take a little pause and ask inside, What's my best intention? What is my highest intention? And almost always the heart will answer, oh I want this to work out, or I want, you know, this person to know I care, I want harmony, I want us to find a way to love each other. The heart wants that. And then you notice that you change the wording in the email, or what you're about to say has a different tone of voice to it, less trying to prove yourself right and more trying to understand. You know what I'm talking about? And that little bit of tuning to your intention is the way to carry this practice forward. So that short-term intention, and people read it, they feel it, the vibe of it. Especially in this time of managed care, more emphasis seems to be placed upon medication and the quick amelioration of symptoms, short-term work, and privatized profit-making clinics than upon the lovely and mysterious alchemy that comprises the healing cords between and within people, the cords that soothe our terrors and help us to be whole. So it's a description of medicine and healing, but it's really a description of the communion between people. And you listen to your intention, something different comes. Now, there's also something called long term intention. And in Buddhist tradition, it's most beautifully characterized by the Bodhisattva vow, where you take time to reflect about this mysterious incarnation. You get quiet, you look at, okay, here I am. I have this body and mind and education and history and life and possibility. What matters? What do I really want to do with this life? And the Dalai Lama wakes up in the morning. With Shanti Davis, Bodhisattva vows, May I be a bridge or a raft or a boat for those to cross the flood. May I be medicine for the sick. May I be food for the hungry. May I be a resting place for the weary. May I be a lamp in the darkness of ignorance. May I be an inspiration for those who've lost hope. May I do this as long as earth and sky and suns and galaxies exist until all beings we together are enlightened. Something like that, some little vow. (laughs) (laughs) But what happens is that if you take such a vow, it doesn't have to be the formal one, but if you reflect on what really matters, you set the compass of your heart to the north star of your life which might be as simple as, I vow to be kind. I vow to be truthful or to listen. Diane Ackerman, friend and poet, wrote this poem. She says, In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning, And the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature a healer of misery as a messenger of wonder and an architect of peace like a modern Bodhisattva vow so then when you're messed up, which could happen, right? Or you lose your way, which might also happen. Or you're in a difficult situation. You pause and you check in. Say, well, what is my intention? What is my vow? And it tells you which way to go. My Sharon's friend Sharon Salzberg tells the story of this homeless person coming up. When she was traveling, I think in Seattle, wanting something from her and saying, Don't you know me? And she said it was shocking, because some part of me realized that I'd never met this man before, but when someone says, Don't you know me, it touches something, doesn't it? And then she realized, Well, I did know him. I didn't know him in the particulars, but he was saying, Don't you know me? We're of the same kind. As Mother Teresa says, the trouble with you is you draw your family circle too small. And so when you understand intention in the short term and in the long term, you open yourself to become a bodhisattva, which is a compound word. Bodhi means awakening and sattva is being. A being committed to compassion, liberation, awakening no matter what the circumstances. It's a kind of cool thing to choose. It's up to you. But it's a very wonderful way to use this human incarnation. Plus which then you have the Dalai Lama and Tutu and other people like that on your team, which is pretty good. (laughs) Now, it doesn't mean that it's always done in these great gestures of peace marches through the war zones and so forth. Psychologist Len Bergantino writes about a series of frustrating therapy sessions with a patient who was either disconnected and detached or extremely anxious to please. The feeling I had on this particular day was I just didn't want to say one more word to him about anything. So to his surprise, I took out my mandolin and in the most loving, mellow, beautiful way I could, I played Come Back to Sorrento. He broke down in tears, wept for the last 40 minutes of the session, saying only, Bergantino, you sure earned your money today. (laughs) And I replied, to think I wasted all those years talking to people. (laughs) (laughs) It's not always some dramatic Thing, you know. It's the moment, that person and that one. But there's something else terribly important in understanding compassion. It has to include yourself. In Tibetan, the word compassion, you can't understand it separating yourself out. Here we think compassion, oh, that poor person, I'm going to help him or her. Like it's pity or something. They're suffering over there and I'm the hero or the, you know, whatever it is. But in fact, the circle of compassion which allows it to flow has to include one other person for it to be complete. Otherwise it becomes codependence or, you know, you're doing something to someone. Guess who that person is? As Miss Piggy would say, moi. That's right. It has to include you as well. In our center in Massachusetts at i m s in Barry, beautiful old Catholic monastery surrounded by the woods for the three month retreat. We have a beautiful two month retreat in the spring here. They have the autumn three month retreat, and it gets into winter, it snows, and people in the winter will go out in the back patio and take bird seeds. There's some bird seeds there. And if they stand very still, I mean, you're there for three months. You know, what are you going to do? <laughs> Sometimes the birds will come. So this is Mary Oliver' poem called Winter and the Nuthatch. Once or twice and maybe again, who knows, the timid nuthatch will come to me if I stand still with something good to eat in my hand. The first time he did it, he landed smack on his belly as though his legs were so frightened they wouldn't cooperate. Next time he was bolder, gradually he became wild about the walnuts. But there was a morning I came late, and guess what? The nuthatch was flying into a stranger's hand. To speak plainly, I felt betrayed. I wanted to say, Mr., that nuthatch and I have a relationship. (laughs) It took hours standing in the snow before he would drop from the tree and trust my fingers. But I didn't say anything. Nobody owns the sky or the trees. Nobody owns the heart of birds. Still, being human and partial, therefore, to my own successes, though not resentful of others fashioning theirs, I'll come tomorrow, I believe, quite early. (laughs) And there comes this sense of graciousness, not of judging, but of loving your humanity in its tainted glory and the humanity of others, and planting the seeds of goodness as you go, and trusting that, not the results. As Thomas Burton says, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no results at all if, not at times bring about its opposite. As you get used to this, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. And so you start to live from the values of the heart. You set your compass. You learn to relax in uncertainty. You let the tenderness of compassion be with you, and you practice regularly that's why it's called practice, right? Rather than perfect or something. You practice to remind yourself to inhabit this beauty, this true nature. And then you trust. You plant seeds and trust. Pablo Neruda's line you can pick all the flowers but you can't stop the spring there's some great force of life that wants to do beautiful things with you no matter how difficult your circumstances the Gosananda's and Ang San Suu Kyi's show Nelson Mandela's show what's possible this is why you can see ninety-year-old widows committed to tending small flowers in spring and ten-year-olds with very little to eat Care for stray kittens holding them to their skinny chests. And painters glowing, going blind, painting more, and composers going deaf, write great symphonies. And as we give ourselves to life, it floods through us, it renews us. Last phrase from Yoma Apollinaire. Now and then it is good to pause. In your pursuit of happiness and just be happy.
0: Thanks everybody for listening to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We appreciate your support, and we ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com/slash Jack. Look forward to seeing you next week.